law or how it manifests in their heart, whatever light that they had. And then because of that, that condemnation, there is a righteousness that can be had. Or I shouldn't say because of it or in lieu of it, there's a righteousness that can be had. And so chapter 3 is, is a, a kind of a, a great chapter because we begin to move out of this universal condemnation, which is not a bad idea. It's not an idea that we want to flee from. It's actually a very important idea for how we can uh, understand what God did for us and, and ultimately what Christ purchased for us at the cross. So I'm actually going to read the last portion here for context's sake of Romans uh, 2, and then we'll get into Romans 3. So in Romans chapter 2 and verse 25, it says there, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded or his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who physically is, un, is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now in 3, he's going to carry on to, uh, talking to the Jews, or at least about the Jews, explaining about where the Jews are, are positionally uh, with the law and with righteousness. And he's going to uh, ask some questions here. There's actually a lot of questions in Romans chapter 3, and then he's going to answer, us, answer them for us. So in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then he's going to ask another question. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So the first question he asks, and he's going to ask it again in verse 9, actually, is he says, what advantage was there then to being a Jew? If everyone is condemned, whether by the law, with the law, or without the law, remember we read that last week, if everyone is condemned under sin, the power of sin, then what, is, what benefit was there to the Jew? And he says, immediately, he says, in every way there is a benefit. And the point that he's making is, remember, is not that Jews have some sort of advantage when it comes to righteousness, but there is an advantage when it comes to just being familiar. He says, you have the oracles of God. Now, it's interesting because if you go back and you read the law, and we've kind of shared some examples here about the law, and years ago we went through Leviticus and Numbers, and on Thursday nights, we're actually going to be kicking off Deuteronomy here in November on Thursday nights. But if you go back and you look at the law, the law, and we'll talk about that more in a second, actually, it kind of served a couple of purposes. First and foremost, the law showed that no human being is able to accomplish what God wants, that we all break it. The law is there literally to condemn all humanity. The law has never, ever been designed to be a source for righteousness. In other words, to look at and say, I am righteous because I X, Y, Z. It was never for that. He's going to say that in Romans 3. He's going to say that in Romans 5. He's going to say that in Romans 6. He's going to say that in Galatians. He's going to say it. Everywhere he talks about righteousness, he points out, Paul points out by the Spirit, that the law cannot make a person righteous. It can't do it. It doesn't have the faculty to. In fact, he calls it in 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, he calls it weak, that it cannot make a person 
righteous. But what the law, aside from showing sin, what the law did, it showed the heart of God. And that's what's pretty interesting, because if you read the law, and it's the same with our laws even today, but if you read the, the Mosaic law or the Levitical law, the, the, it's really the bare minimum. Like, for example, thou shalt not murder, right? It's not thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not murder. So if God says, hey, I don't want you to murder each other, is that the only part of the law that he wants? Is, that, is it basically like, well, if I kick the poop out of someone, that's fine. If I just go around insulting people everywhere, that's fine, just as long as I don't murder. No, it's the bare minimum, right? It's the bare minimum to say, I do not want you to murder each other. But when Jesus, when he talks about, hey, you've heard it said, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, if a person hates someone, they murdered them in their hearts. See, the Levitical law, not only was it in, in, in a kind of an exposure to humans of our shortcomings, and, but it governed a people. It was like, we have laws that govern us, right? You're not supposed to run a red light. You're not supposed to do these things. But the, the reason you don't run a red light is for safety's sake, right? So it, the law doesn't work like, well, if you, we, we just, the, the bare minimum is don't kill people or don't wipe people out from running a red light. So be safe. Don't maim people. Don't do these things. Even more so, the law has things like, uh, if, if you're, you see your, your enemy, not your neighbor, your enemy, and he's trying to yard his donkey out of a ditch, you had to help him. You had to. Can you imagine? Let's just be honest right now. What if Washington State moved to pass a law that said if you see your enemy and his donkey, or I don't know, his car today, I guess, is in a ditch, you have to help him out. We would say, no way. We would start petitions. We would be calling our congressmen. And we would say, this violates my rights. You cannot force me to help someone else. That's what probably most of our response would be like. That's a terrible law. We can't have it. But it was one of God's laws for his people. That if you see your enemy's donkey in a ditch, you have to help him pull it out. Now, if you go to that, like and those of us have children, maybe can identify with this. If, you're, if you go over to your enemy and go, all right, stupid enemy, all right, yeah, I'm here. The law says I have to help you out with your donkey. Don't touch me. I'm just helping you with the donkey. All right, your donkey's out, so shut up and go away. Is that God's heart? Is he like, oh, good, you did what I wanted you to do? No, the law is the bare minimum, right? Because we see our kids like, hey, if they have a bad attitude, like, hey, I need you to do the dishes. And they can do the dishes, like, water's going everywhere. And we could do the same thing. Well, fine. But that's not God's, that's not what he wants. The bare minimum is, hey, help your enemy out. But what he wants is a heart. And that's what Jesus exposed to us. So when, when Paul says, hey, what benefit did, does being a Jew have? The benefit is, he says, you understood who God is. Now, it was their choice whether they walked with him or they were faithful with that, just as it's our choice today. But he says, that's the benefit. You knew and you were exposed to who God is and what his heart is. If we were to go back and look at Moses, Deuteronomy is basically like five sermons that Moses gives. It's kind of interesting because Deuteronomy only covers 37 days. It's literally the day he starts teaching the children of Israel, and it's 37 days until he finishes and he dies on the mountaintop and God takes him. So, but if you go back and you read Deuteronomy, it's really interesting because you have this, uh, oh, I forgot, where was I going with that? <laughs> with the law, the righteousness, Moses, I don't know. It was really good though. But anyway, so, 
I don't know. Oh, the law, the exposure of the law. So when, when he's encouraging the children of Israel and he's going back over the law, I don't know where I was going with that. I was, <laughs> you guys can email me how bad I am. But so there's this. <laughs> the oracle. Oh, oh I, now I remember. Okay. So he says, when, when, when he's talking to, to Israel and Moses is talking to him, what he says to him, he says, hey, look, God chose you to be a light to the nations. So he, he, says, he says, when God chose you, actually in Isaiah says, he, he also gives testimony to Israel, and he says, God picked you when you were tiny and dying, polluted in your own blood. That's how the God's description of how he found Israel. And he says, and I found you, and you were the least of all peoples, and I chose you to be a light to the nations. It's really interesting. So Israel's whole job was not to hold the truth of God to themselves and become arrogant like they did, it was to be a light. Anybody could come. And when you go back and read the Levitical law, anyone could come and join themselves to Israel, and Israel had to treat them well. They couldn't oppress them. They couldn't rob from them. They, couldn't, they had to be careful. There were, there, were, there were different laws, but they had to be kind to them. And so when you see God's law, you see it was always to be a light. It was always to be revelation. Now, they failed in that. It is interesting. I don't want to make a, too big of a point here, but sometimes we as Christians, we do the same thing. The church is sometimes not very different. We can get to these places, and maybe you have as an individual, or maybe you have observed it, where we become like, we have God's oracle. We know what's up. You're a dog. You're stuck in your sin. You're gross to me. I don't want to, have you ever experienced that? Where someone who is supposed to have the love of Christ, the tenderness of Christ, instead interjects with the law and interjects with condemnation. You know how, how destructive that is to our own hearts? It's interesting. We have to be careful. Israel's whole job was to love God and reveal him to the nations. And just as a side note, that's the church's job too to love God and to reveal him to the nations. We're not here to, to measure or to judge the Gentile. We're just here to do the same thing. So they get conceited. They fall away from that. They begin to find their own righteousness in this. So in this, in this question, what advantage did the Jew have? That's the advantage they had. They had the opportunity, first and foremost, to know God, who is obviously exceedingly far superior to Asherah or Moloch or, or Baal or any other of the false gods of the day that people worshipped. So he says, first and foremost, that was the advantage of the Jew. He's going to go on. He says, now what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So there's another question he asks. And he says, so if some of the Jews were unfaithful to God, does that now nullify or does God become unfaithful to them? Did, did, because they didn't continue in the, uh, the covenant, that God made with them, some of them, and as we know, the majority, right? Remember back to the story we looked at last week where three million or so Jews, and, and, and uh, uh, out of those three million Jews, God tells uh, uh, Elijah that 7,000 didn't bow the knee to Baal out of three million. So this is a lot of people that, have, that are unfaithful to the covenant. So he says, does that mean that their unfaithfulness to the covenant, that then God was unfaithful? And he says, absolutely not. Their unbelief did not nullify God's faithfulness. God is faithful to them. And actually, chapters 9 through 11 are going to talk in great detail in Romans about God's plan for the Jews in the future. So anyway, we move on. 
It did not. He says, by no means. Let God be true, though, uh, though everyone uh, uh, were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, this is a quote. As in, remember in Psalm 51, David is, um, he's written a psalm of repentance. And it's after his sin with Bathsheba, after Nathan the prophet comes to him and speaks to him and he repents. And so he writes this. And, and interesting, in the psalm, the first portion of this is he says, he says, uh, in, in, in sin, my, my uh, mother conceived me. And that's been used kind of some weird ways to try to like come up with some funky ideas about sex. It's not that sex is sinful in a marriage or something like that. That's not what he's saying. The point is that David is saying, look, I am altogether sinful. My origin is from two sinful parents that conceived a sinful child. And so he says, I was conceived altogether in sin. And then the, 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 down the uh, paragraph from that, that's when he says that you may be justified in your words. In other words, he's saying God is always justified. David is saying you are justified to condemn anyone that you condemn. You're justified in, in your words and you're justified to prevail uh, when you judge. That you alone are worthy of that. If it seems like I'm going a little fast, I am. So forgive me for that. We're trying to, trying to get through this. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness, and this is another question, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So now he's going to ask some philosophy questions. And Paul does this in a lot of his letters where he asks questions and then answers them for us. So in this question he says, Hey, if me being unrighteous, if all are condemned under sin and every single person is unrighteous, then if, if my unrighteousness reveals through the law how righteous God is, then he can't have wrath on me. Right? Because I'm just doing what comes naturally to me. He's doing what naturally comes to him. And it just shows how great he is. So then how could he possibly judge me if I'm just doing what comes naturally to me as a sinner and he's thought of so great? So he, he asks that question. And he answers it for us. It, well, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And he says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned? So he answers it and he says, look, no, that's, that's a foolish idea. If you take that idea, then ultimately what you're saying is that God has no right or no justice to condemn anyone because all do evil. Now, we know that that's not right. That's not a true, uh, a true response. That's like a, like a workaround or a, 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 a loophole or something like that. But he goes on to say, if the, uh, this, this other question, which is similar to the first, but if through my lie, in other words, remember all the way back in chapter 1, he's talking about that through unrighteousness, we suppress the truth and instead we buy a lie. And we've talked all about that, how this is a normal human behavior, to suppress the truth in my life. It could be addiction. It could be uh, you know, how I'm treating someone. Has somebody ever said, hey, you're treating me poorly? And you're like, what? No, no way. I'm, I'm doing this. This is totally legitimate what I'm doing. And we, so we, all the time when we are trying to escape what is known or demanded, we're trying to escape what we don't want to do or, or, or escape from God in this context, we spin a lie. And then we just hold to that lie to the death. And, then, and so he's asking the question, if I'm lying, if I'm suppressing God's truth, and, and, and then, but then it's exposed by the law as how true it is, 
then why am I being judged by God if my lie reflects how true his truth is? Does that make sense? It's another philosophical question that he's asking. If me lying makes God look better, then why am I being judged for that? And he's going to ask that, answer that question. And he says in, in verse 8, uh, he answered it with another question. He says, and, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with, the, uh, with saying, excuse me, as some people slander, slanderlessly charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So again, he just refutes this idea by just saying, look, people are asking, why don't we just continue in evil so that good will come? If I continue in my lie, if I continue in my righteousness, if that glorifies God and it shows how good he is, then why don't I just keep doing evil to show that God is good? And that's even some of our modern philosophy. I've, I've read certain things, perhaps you have too, where people, they make this argument. They say, hey, if there's no evil, then you can't truly know what good is. You ever heard that before? Ever, ever heard like a read a philosophy paper or something like that where somebody tries to use the point like evil is necessary to reflect against good. And it's a phallus argument. It's a straw man. It's like, a, it's like an argument almost from silence in a way. And ultimately, no, you can experience good just to have good. You don't need to experience bad to have good. And so Paul says, look, people charge us with saying that, which makes sense, right? Because what are the Judaizers' applications or uh, 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 accusations? Judaizers and, and were constantly accusing Paul of essentially disregarding the law and disregarding Moses and saying that he didn't matter and it wasn't important. Remember that? We, that's all the way back from Acts. So many people were, because Paul taught, look, a person is righteous apart from the law. You don't have to go back to fulfilling the law to be righteous. So Judaizers are accused, accusing him of saying, oh yeah, just do evil by not doing the law and then God will be glorified. But Paul says, that's not what I was saying. They're, they're falsely accusing us. That was never the point of our message. And then he makes the point their judgment, it says condemnation, but really their judgment is just. That when, when false teachers who reject the gospel are saying those things, that there will be a just judgment or a just condemnation to them from God. We move on. Now he's going to ask another question. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And we'll stop there for a second. So the first time he asked, what benefit is there to being a Jew? And he says, because as a Jew, you were raised not in, in Gentile idolatrous society with, a, with Gentile idolatrous values and sacrificial systems and so forth. You were raised knowing who the true God is because you had the oracles of God. Now he's talking about righteousness, right? We're talking about judgment and righteousness. And so now he asks the question, what benefit then does the Jew or what advantage does the Jew have? And his answer is this, none at all. This is really important because there's, there's so many weird Christian things that kind of circulate around where it's you become a Christian and that's kind of good, but then you also need to do the feasts. You also need to do this part of the law or that part of the law. And this, this gives you a more uh, richer experience or it brings you closer to God or all these different things. And he says, look, Judaism, for righteousness sake, has no advantage over the Gentile. Not at all, he says. It's very emphatic in the Greek. Not at all. He says, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
as it is written. So now what he's going to do is he's going to pull out a bunch of quotes from five different sources in the Old Testament. Why is he doing that? Because he's showing the Jews and anybody else who's reading that the Jews, that this was always God's rule. It was always true that there was never an advantage to being a Jew for the sake of righteousness. That it was always an advantage to being a Jew only in Revelation. Not the book, but in understanding. So he says here, and this is what he quotes, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. I'm going to point something out here, because I'm not going to go through all this for time's sake, but I'm going to point something out here. When it says that together they have become worthless, we want to be careful, because he's not saying that human beings are worthless. What he's saying is it literally would be like, They've become useless. They've become short or unable to do what God has for them. Not useful for what his kingdom involves. Okay, Not that you're worthless. He's not saying, well, sinful people and people that don't know me are worthless, and then you gain worth once you get saved. He's not saying that. He's saying that we as, as individuals in the human race, that we have become useless for what God wants for us, which is fellowship with him. right? Fellowship with one another, fellowship with him. These type of things. Well, there's more to be said about that in a little bit. Not one does good. And it's the idea, not that no one has ever done good. It's, it's uh, like a present active. It's the idea that no one continually always does good. Does that make sense? Because there's plenty of people that do good, right? I'm sure before you were a Christian, you could probably point to something where you're like, I did good. I bought someone a coffee, right? That's not inherently evil. I mean, I guess you could do it with evil motives, like I will buy you this coffee and then you will like me more and but I don't know. But the point is that, that, that no human being has ever saved Christ completely and always done good. Their throat is an open grave. Now, this is interesting because for the next verses, he's going to list five things that have to do with throats, lips, mouths, that just how we speak to one another, how we interact with one another. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. They're destructive. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. They're blasphemous. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Now we're talking about our acts. They were, were quick to murder. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And verse 18 is kind of a summation of all those things. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now who is he talking about? Us, humans. The whole point, he says, is Jews and Gentiles. This is who we are, that all are condemned to understand. Why is it so emphatic? Why is it so important? Because we're so tempted to think we're good people, aren't we? We're so tempted to think, I'm pretty solid. And it's funny, if I, one of the, we used to do, uh, years ago, I used to do, uh, through a church, we did a ton of like two-by-two two witnessing. And I'll tell you what, I can't count, and maybe you've had the same experience, and I, I'm sure I probably said the same thing as a kid. How many people say, they, we say, I'm not that bad. I've never killed anyone. And you're like, once again, is that the basis for being a good person? I've never killed someone. I feel like that's a pretty low baseline for how we, you know, we, we calculate what a good person is. But we manipulate. Right? We try to get our way. We backstab. We gossip. We trash talk. We evaluate ourselves as better than others. And the crazy thing is it just happens naturally, right? We have to try not to do that. Right? Not, not many of us have to try to gossip. You just stand there and talk. 
And it doesn't take very long. Even the Proverbs say, in the multitude of words, there is no want for sin. I love that. It's King James, meaning when you talk a lot, there's, not good, there's going to be sin. And it's just, it just comes naturally to us. So the, 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 the importance of condemnation is for us to, to move away from some sort of idea that we or someone else is somehow inherently good. And, and that somehow, they, that for God to judge them, it would be wrong. Isn't that one of the biggest objections that comes up in our own hearts? And Why would I get judged? Why would judge, God judge that person? They're a good person. Because no good person has ever lived save Christ. He's the only one. Because this is the description. This is what we're like. Now, it doesn't mean we've never done good, but it's not who we are. Doing good is actually uncharacteristic for, for those uh, for those of us before we knew Christ and just for humans in general in our old nature. So he says there in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now this is kind of that final nail in the law coffin. And the point that he's making here, he says, look, we know that the, what the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now this is Jews, obviously, but in a sense it's also Gentiles. Remember, when he's talking about Gentiles, people that don't know the law or are not familiar with uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, the Old Testament names that we have for God the Father, he says that, Way back in chapter 1, he makes the point that when a Gentile or someone without law sins against their own conscience, murders someone, lies, and they know in their conscience that they've broken the law, a law, they become a law to themselves. Their own conviction based on the law written in their hearts, understanding that this is morally wrong and still doing it, they, they convict themselves. So the law is written, and the whole point of the law, and this is pretty drastic. He says, look, the law is written here so that the whole world, their mouths will be stopped. Any honest mouth, when looking at the law, will be stopped. Because we just have to be, thou shalt not covet. Let's close the book on all of us. You ever have an unhealthy desire for something before? Something that, that tore your mind up, that you had to have, that you, you craved after, you thought after? You couldn't let go of? It's covetousness. Ever lied before? Just thought to yourself, hey, you know what? I'm just going to not tell the truth. Because for what reason? Why do we lie? Sometimes I guess it could be to protect others, but for the most part, it's to protect ourselves, protect our image, protect what we think of or we want somebody else to think of ourselves, protect us from jail, protect us from all sorts of things. But we do it to protect us. It's self-centered sin that comes from a place of desiring to advance self. And he says, look, what the law says, it's to close every mouth so that the whole world can be accountable to God. That's why he wrote the law. And then verse 20, here's this doctrinal statement that we've been working on, that we've been, we've been um, using in, in the last few weeks that we've been in Romans, and here we have it stated for us. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You and I, no human that has ever lived, save Christ, can be justified, meaning right with God. Declared innocent is what it means. That person, nobody can be declared innocent in front of God by doing the law. It is impossible. It cannot be done. There's no one who's ever did it. Mother Teresa didn't do it. No one did it. And this is very important, especially to the Jew, because what was their national identity? 
We have the law. We're children of Abraham. We're gold. We're fine. It's funny because, again, the church, universally, some people in the church have adopted the same idea. My folks were Christians. I go to church. I have the church. I'm good. Which is a complete misunderstanding of how righteousness comes and how it's delivered. So he makes this final nail in the coffin. Nobody, the law is not designed to make anybody righteous, and the law will not and has never has made anybody righteous, and it never will. Verse 21. Now here's the gear shift right here. This is where Paul completely changes his, his outlook, or not outlook, but his, his topic, and he's going to talk about righteousness from God. He's going to talk about how God has given righteousness to human beings. He's going to talk about it from now until the end of chapter 5. This is kind of all one section. But he says here in uh, verse 21, but now, meaning now, now that Jesus is here, now that he's died and rose again from the dead and ascended, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophet bear witness to it. Now he's talking about this is how a person is righteous. So he says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It might be easier to understand the idea is a righteousness from God. It's not God's intrinsic righteousness as divine, uh, as, a, as the divine being, but it's the righteousness that he gives to human beings. So the righteousness means the rightness. It's the idea of that you are now not only just innocent, but you are right in God's eyes. It's not just the absence of a negative outlook that God has for you, and it's that you have a positive outlook, that God sees you in a positive way, that he sees you as right with him, that there's no condemnation upon you, there's no judgment upon you, there's nothing that he's charging you with, that you are right with him. And he says that this is a righteousness that God gives and it has been manifested. It's appeared. It's, it's been given. It's, it's here and now. And it's apart from the works of the law. This is really important for us. What law? Well, Mosaic law primarily, but any law. My law, your law. We're not talking about civil law or something like that. But if, if your law says, if I read my Bible any morning, every morning, that makes me right with God. No, it doesn't. It makes you possibly educated. It may bring you have a, in a devotional life to help you hear from God, but you're already right with God. So there's, there's no law that you can come up with or that Moses came up with or that a church can come up with or an author can come up with or a guru can come up with or anybody can come up with that will make you more right with God. It cannot be done because you're as right as you can possibly be with God positionally in Christ. He's going to talk a lot more about that. Now, we'll talk about fellowship and these things in chapter 6 with God, but as far as positionally righteous, he's saying they cannot come by the law. But now there is a righteousness that comes apart from the law, but, and then he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, he's saying, especially for the sake of the Jew, that the, the law, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, in the Old Testament, and then the prophets, the historical Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the uh, Micah, the rest of these prophets, they all bore witness to, they all pointed to, they all announced the coming of the righteousness. So even though the law didn't make a person righteous, it pointed to the fact that one day there would be a way that a person could be righteous. Does that make sense? So that's what Paul is saying, he's building on right now. Verse 22, the righteousness, which righteousness? The righteousness he just mentioned. The righteousness of God, or from God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. So he's still hammering home this point. 
He's saying that this righteousness from God that God provides to humans, that it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how the righteousness comes. And, he's, and then he throws that in. Uh, uh, in the end there, he says where, for there is no distinction. That's Once again, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, and it doesn't matter if you're a Greek or if you're a Gentile or non-Jew. Every single person comes to righteousness through the same way. That is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, faith in what? This is an important idea here. He's going to expand on it in a minute and talk about redemption through blood. But it's what do we believe about Jesus that makes us righteous? This is kind of, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be a jerk or, or my, my goal is definitely not to, to hound anybody. But a lot of times I've been in places and maybe you've been in places and maybe I've even said it to my own uh, dismay. But, but what will happen is the, the gospel will be preached perhaps. But the, the influence or the, the, the I don't know, the, the application to it is, comes something like this. Jesus wants you to have a better life. So come up front right now and receive Jesus for your better life. And the hard part is that is not the gospel. Does Christ make your life better? Yeah, he does. But see, the faith that, that a person has that, that saves a person, a, pay, a, a faith that makes a person right with God is not my life is poopy, and so I want a better one, and so now I'll come to Jesus and he'll give me that. The gospel is this. Our throats are open sepulchers. What comes out of me is death in the natural, rotten, stinky death. That is the best that I can produce in myself, in my fallen nature. That my lips are poisonous to people in myself. That I destroy with my words. That my feet are swift your feet are swift to shed blood, to hurt others for your own gain. See, the, that's the gospel. The good news is that human beings are completely and uh, utterly hopeless before a righteous God. But because he loves you, he sent Jesus Christ who took our sin, all our words, all our bloodshed, all of our lives, all of our anger and wrath and judgment, all of our disdain and humiliating others, all of our manipulations. And it says that he bore it in himself. And so when we invite people to salvation, we're not inviting people to just a better life. A better life is worthless compared to what we're inviting people. And that is, do you want to turn to Christ and be forgiven for who you are and what you've done? That's the gospel. And I'm not trying to be a jerk about it because God is so good and he does, he blesses us. And you know, sometimes we have lives like Job and sometimes we have lives like David where it seems like no matter what happens, you just get blessed. But, this, but that's the, not the end goal per se. The end goal is to, to be near Christ, to be forgiven, to be cleansed. So when he says that righteousness comes by faith, that's the faith that you and I were hopelessly lost with zero chance and zero deserve, deserving of a chance. And he loved us and he paid for our sins. And he says that now you can be and I can be right with God simply because we trust in what he did. He's going to go on and we kind of, this is kind of a tag along. He says, the, um, 
it kind of gets uh, added on sometimes as kind of a singular idea, but it's the same idea. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he's tacking that on to verse 22. There's no distinction because everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? I know it's like the Romans road. We're like, oh, all have sinned and fallen short of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to fall short of God's glory? Does it mean that like somehow uh, he's really bright and we're really dim and so he's like, oh, I'm so much brighter than you. I mean, does it mean, like, what does this mean? What is the point of this? Well, it's interesting because the, the verbiage here, all have sinned, past tense, but, and fall short is in the present tense. So it'd be more like all have sinned and continually always fall short of God's glory. Now, glory is like good opinion or weightiness. And really the idea here is not that we that like somehow there was some way that we would actually share and be just like God and have that same glory. The idea is that what God wanted for us, his plan, who he is, and we know from other places for the believer is to be conformed into his image. His plan, what he desired is for us to be with him. So every day, all day, the sinner sins, but continually always falls short of what he has for us, that we fall short of his desire for us. And this is one of the reasons why I'm an eternal security guy, because the answer in verse 24, he says there, and are justified by his grace as a gift, as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So all have fought, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So in the, in the verbiage there, in the Greek, it comes through so much clearer because he says, all are continually falling short of his glory and all, and it's in the present active again, are continually being justified by his grace. So the justification that comes by faith through, in Christ as a gift through grace is always happening. It wasn't that we got saved. Have you ever thought about Christianity this way? Like, is, and I think people mean well, but they say things like, oh, keep a short account, brothers. You got to keep a short account with the Lord. And that's fine. Keep a short account. But the idea is if you don't, you're going to stack up sins and then to hell with you. But that's not even remotely what happens with the gospel. Because those of us, all of us who are continually falling short of what God has for us, the gift of God in grace through Christ is continually justifying us. We didn't get justified when we got saved. We are being justified because we trusted in Christ and accepted the free gift. In other words, the free gift is a perpetual offering. It wasn't like a one-time gift, and now you better really try hard or you're hosed. That's not the idea is that the believer is constantly being justified, is always justified. And this is something I think for many of us, the closet legalist comes out and we're like, no, there's just no way. There's just no way it can be like that. It's really got to be effort on my part. Even though I've already read that his righteousness is apart from the law, even though I've already read I can never be right with God if I did everything, because I, I can't do everything that the law says. I've already not done everything that the law says. And then we read again that his, that, that his grace is continually justifying, is, is presently, right now, justifying us as a gift. And we just go, that's just too big of a gift. I, 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 I can't believe it. I won't believe it. Because that's how we treat people and how people treat us. And we just can't believe that God is different than us. But we have to elevate our thinking. We have to really, what is in black and white here? The fact that our justification, our redemption was purchased by the blood of Christ. 
a full purchase. It wasn't like, you know, sometimes like parents, they try to be like, hey, I'll, I'll help you. I'll put a down payment on a car for you. Right? And you're doing your kid a solid. I'll put a down payment for you, and then you can have affordable payments after that. And I think we think that's how Jesus works. Like, here's what I did. I did a down payment for your salvation. Now you, like, 150 bucks a month, you're gold. You just keep that up with me, and then you'll stay righteous. When he says, no, I paid it all. I paid it all. When, when someone pays everything, is there something left to pay? No, it's insulting when you try to do that, right? Like, if you, if you go out to lunch with someone and they say, hey, I'll buy you lunch, you're like, no, 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 let me pay. I mean, usually we're just kidding. We're just, like, doing the polite thing. But, you know, it's like, no, 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 let me pay, let me pay. Like, like, I said I would pay. I want to bless you. But if you keep trying to put money down, like, no, let me pay. That conveys something really weird, doesn't it? Like, I don't want your gift. It's insulting when someone tries to pay for something you've already paid for, or you give a gift and they say, and the, the, the irony in our case is that it's impossible to pay back. Let me try to pay you back, Jesus. Here's what I'll do. I'll uh, donate money to a charity. Oh, thank you. I only made you right with my father. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's so paltry in comparison. But his gift, and there again, gift, a gift. In chapter 5, he's going to say people that look for, to works for justification, he says their works, it's like a payment. It's like a paycheck. He says ours is a, is a gift. It's a continual gift through the grace of God, through what Jesus did. Just take a deep breath and just know that if you're in Christ, if you're a person who's trusted Christ, God has no condemnation for you right now. He's not after you right now. If you slipped and fell in the parking lot and dropped an F-bomb, he's not mad at you, right? He loves you. You're forgiven because Jesus paid it all. If you got in a fight with the spouse on the way here, you're forgiven because Christ paid for it. And his grace right now is you're still justified before him. So you can't be justified and in trouble. It's one or the other. And the believer, you know, he, God's not like passive aggressive. The believer is perpetually justified by grace through a gift. And that was accessed, simply accessed. It was always there, but it was accessed by faith, by saying, I receive who you say that I am, and I receive what you say that you did, and I, and I need it. And he says, you're right with me. We're right. We're good. We're 100% good. It's, it's amazing. That's what makes the gospel such an amazing story. It's what makes the gospel such an amazing impact in our life and, and why, honestly, in the right settings, it's very easy to share with people because we're not saying, hey, come join my church. Hey, I got this cool 615 law pamphlet here for you. And if you do these things, maybe God will like you. It's called the Levitical law. It's kind of weird in some places, but it'll be, you know, no. We say, do you understand that you're completely messed up before God and he will judge you and you will deserve what you get? You go, I do, yes. Do you understand that Christ paid for that on the cross and you can have forgiveness for God if you just ask him for it right now, out loud, quiet, however you want to do it, that you can know that for, and have eternal life with him? Yes. Okay, we're in. It's, it's the amazing truth of the gospel. Then he's going to go on. He says, he says we, we have justified by his grace as a gift, there in verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Once again, reiterating the point, the, point, the word redemption there being to be purchased, uh, in a, uh, to be, basically to have a ransom paid, to be purchased by ransom. That's what redemption means. And the, the point there is that Christ paid everything so that we could be purchased from slavery. That's the picture. 
slaves to our sin. He paid it all. Verse 25, whom God put forward, that is Christ God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to, received, to, to be received by faith. Now the word propitiation here, the word propitiation is used in different parts of the Bible, 1 John and so forth, and in our English Bibles, but the word in Greek is only used twice. It's used here and it's used in Hebrews, and it's the word mercy seat. And if you recall, it's a reference back to the Old Covenant that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, this kind of 15 foot by 15 foot by 15 foot box, and he would go in there and there was the Ark of the Covenant. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant was the uh, it was uh, acacia wood that was overlaid with gold. And then you had the two gold cherubims with their wings that were touching. Ironically, if you go and watch uh, what is it, Indiana Jones and the, the uh, not the Last Crusade, which is the one with the Ark of the Covenant? Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm not saying you should go see that, see that movie. I'm just saying if you did go see that movie, that's actually a very good representation of what the top of the Ark looked like. And so what would happen is that the high priest, once a year, would have to have a certain uh, attire on and so forth. We won't go into. But he would take blood, and he would sprinkle the blood on the cherubim, on the mercy seat. And God said, I will meet with you, the high priest, for the sake of the people, Israel, at the mercy seat. So Paul's using a word that refers back to this idea, the, the Day of Atonement, that where atonement was made for sin. And he says that we were redeemed, we have redemption through Christ, and God put him forward, put Christ forward, propitiation, which means a payment by sacrifice or, or, or like just the right payment, the perfect payment. That God put Christ forward as the perfect payment, the mercy seat, the place where he would forgive us. It's somewhat metaphorical. And, and, and that was in his blood. His blood was sprinkled at the mercy seat. So this is for the sake of the Jew also. For the, the Jew would be able to see, oh, so Christ, the, the mercy seat was a type and a shadow of Jesus. That he would come and shed his blood on our behalf, and that's where God would meet with us. That we have entrance because of the blood of Christ to see God. Now, if you recall, is at the, the time when Jesus dies, what happens in Jerusalem? The, the, we're told that the, the uh, curtain in the temple between the, out, the, the what would be where like the uh, brazen altar and these things would be, this kind of outer court, not court, but the outer portion of the temple, that there was a huge uh, uh, curtain. And that curtain, when Christ died, was torn supernaturally from top to bottom. It was a massive curtain. It was huge. And it tears open, and all of a sudden, the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant or, or, uh, yeah, is visible to everyone. So you, you also have this kind of miraculous symbology that occurs at Jesus' death, that the entrance is wide open through his cross. There's no more curtain now into the presence of God. And so he, Paul is making these, these statements that, that, that for us are interesting and are, are, are excellent, but actually carry a lot richer uh, metaphor and understanding. So God put forward Christ as a propitiation, the right payment, by his own blood, by Christ's blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now this is interesting. This was to show his righteousness, that he was right, 
that he is just, that he's good. Why? He, he says why. He says that God's righteousness need to be, needed to be shown or demonstrated because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, this is very interesting, and I don't claim to fully understand this by any means, but there's three times in the New Testament that it said that God passed over sins. In Acts 17, we read that he says that he, in times of ignorance, he passed over sin. He withheld judgment. In Romans chapter 2, we're told that he, with, uh, that he wants to lead people to repentance, and so he again withholds, withholds judgment. So whether he's talking about macro or large times when this happened, or he's talking about micro instances, there were times, in, perhaps in your life or my life, or in times in history, where God forbore or you know waited on judgment and in this case it says he's making the point that because Christ would come and pay so he he for you know had forbearance on on sin he didn't judge sin in in, in some sort of way because he knew that Christ was coming now I don't I don't claim to understand that at all but because of that there that what what ends up being the case or what ends up being the point of this is that Christ, or excuse me, that God is righteous because he judged Christ. Now, if we had all been sinned, not any, you know, all of us, I think collectively, if you're familiar with a situation where someone has committed an evil and there's no just retribution, it's upsetting, right? Not many of us are like, I'm so glad that these people that did all these things got nothing. All, there's something that rises up inside of us, right? We say, no, if you have a judge that excuses someone who has clearly been proven to have done something, you would say that that's an unjust judge, wouldn't you? You would say that guy's not righteous. He is not working the way he ought to work. And so God says because there were times where he was forbearant to sin, that he judged Christ, and that was a demonstration that he is righteous. In other words, because he judged Christ, we have every right, judicially, we have every right to be declared righteous. Does that make sense? It's, it's extra encouraging because you weren't just flippantly de declared righteous. God didn't sweep something under the rug. So when, when, when we look at our sin, think of for a moment, how has your sin affected other people? You ever raged on someone? You ever been raged on? How does it make you feel when someone rages on you, insults you, says they hate you, whatever it might be? The destruction that occurs in a heart, right? So our sin has absolutely affected other people, hasn't it? We have wronged others in large ways and in small ways to an extent, right? Different, different wrongs can have a different effect on a life, but we've done it. And so every other sinner against every other sinner on the planet could ask the question, God, if you forbore on their sins, you're not righteous. How could you do that? I deserve justice. But God says, no, I am righteous because I took that judgment and I judged my son for your sin. He who knew no sin became sin on your behalf. And so now it's, it's awesome because when you stand before the Lord and he says, no, you're right with me, he has every judicial ability to do that. He didn't, he didn't fudge the numbers. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't, you know, poke, poke, wink, wink, make you a deal. He judged his son. And now all of us, in a sense, like in John 1, have the right to be righteous through faith because it was given to us in a judiciary way through the, the shedding of Christ's blood and his resurrection. 
It's good stuff to know that we're not just, we're not just barely righteous. We're not just hoping to be righteous, but that God has done everything we needed to be declared righteous, and it's 100% valid in the court of the universe. So then he says there in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what we just said. That now he is just and to be our justifier since he offered us the opportunity to trust Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? So now he's asking another question. And he says, so if this is how it works, then can, where's our boasting go? How can we boast? It is excluded. And it's, it's, maybe the English is a little wonky, but the point is like, there is absolutely zero place for any human being to ever boast in their righteousness. Zero. If we have ever thought to ourselves, I deserve to be righteous, Paul is saying, you are 100% wrong. There has never been a human, save Christ, who has ever deserved to be righteous with God, to be right with God. And so he says, there is no boasting. And, and hopefully that can help us, not to be big jerks about things, but, but, but hopefully that can help us to be sympathetic and empathetic to other human beings and to understand that I can be kind to you and I don't have to judge you because God has been kind to me. You know, it's the, it's the, uh, the, um, the parable of the, the unjust servant. Remember, Jesus tells a parable, and he's talking, uh, if I remember correctly, he's talking to the Pharisees at the time. And he says, let me tell you about this. So there's this guy, and he owns his master, and it's something crazy. I don't remember all the numbers, but it's, it's something like $30,000. It's like, it's like a, a ton of money for that time, an impayable debt. It could never be paid back. And, and so the, his master realizes that, and he says, I forgive you the debt. And then that same guy finds one of his brethren one of the other Jews around him and starts throttling him, starts punching him and says, give me everything you owe. And he owes like three days worth of wages or something like that. So significantly less debt. And the point that Jesus in the end makes is like, if you're forgiven, you need to like leave your brethren alone. You need to, to just let, let me deal with that. And so it's a, I think it's, a, it's a, hopefully a helpful understanding to us that every single person in this room and every single person when we walk out of this room is wrecked. And we're all working through bad stuff in our lives. Bad stuff we caused. Bad stuff other people caused. We're all on the same boat. And so we want to have mercy on each other and be kind to one another. Be, be understanding with one another. Listen to one another. And, and help one another. So he says, what is of our boasting? It's excluded. And then he asks, by what kind of law? So how does it get excluded? He says, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. He says it's not excluded because of the, the, the law, the fulfilling the law, because we could do something to be righteous. He says, no, it's excluded because we simply trusted God, and that's how we became righteous. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. I don't know if you're an underliner. Underline that. Highlight that. Tear it out and put it in your pocket. I mean, whatever you have to do. Just not out of our Bibles. But the, uh, you know, he says, he says, we hold, we hold. This is what we hold to. This is the truth. That one, which one? All the ones, everyone is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You can do nothing to earn God's justification. Not a thing. And let's not try to impute that to other people. Well, if you do this, then you can be right with God. If you, no, they can be right with God just by trusting him, just like we did. 
And then he's going to go on. He says, he's going to expand on this thought because he says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So he makes the statement. He's showing, look, God is not only the God of the Jews, but he's the God of the Gentiles. No one is, is held up by the law. Not the Jews, not the Gentiles. And, and, and realistically, remember, righteousness comes the first time we ever read of righteousness by faith, although obviously I think it happened with Adam and uh, some of his descendants. But the first time we read about it is Abraham. Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. God said, I'm going to do a great work, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Abraham said, sounds good to me. And God said, yeah, we're right. We're good now because you said I could do this great thing in your life. It's literally what our salvation is. I'm hopelessly, sinfully disgusting. God says, I forgave you because I judged my son Jesus. We're like, oh, I'm in. I'll take it. He says, great. You're right with me now. It's just wild, simple, wonderful math that occurs through what Jesus did. But now he's, he's breaking it down. He says he's the God of the Jews. He's the God of the Gentiles. And he asks one last question here in chapter 3. Do we overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, do, do we make the law pointless? Or do we, do we say that the law has no place? Or do we, do we uh, take away its authority? And he says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, lastly, some have tried to use this, and I think a lot of people do it in, in good conscience, that they're not malicious, but they try to use this to say, see, we should keep the law. Not for righteousness' sake, but when a Gentile gets saved, that means that they're saved into kind of this Jew-Gentile mix, but God wants to keep all the old uh, Jew stuff, Jewish stuff. And see, look, it says right here that, we, that our faith, it doesn't nullify the law, and we uphold it. But that's not the point of this. That doesn't even fit the context of this. That doesn't even have anything to do with what's being spoken of in this. We're talking about justification by grace through faith as a gift. We're not talking about upholding feasts. The idea that's being put forward here is this, that our faith, <clears throat> it doesn't nullify what the law said. It actually holds it up because our faith says, the law is right. That's what our agreement is. The law is right. When the law says thou shalt not covet, I am condemned because I have coveted. When the law says that, that I shouldn't lie, I'm condemned because I've lied. When the law says I shouldn't have an idol, I shouldn't have something that's more important to me than God, that's it. I'm condemned because I've done that. And I do that. And so my faith says, no, the law is right. The law is true. And I accept what Jesus did for me at Calvary. So he's not saying that our faith causes us to follow all the law. What he's saying is that our faith absolutely supports what the law has always said and what it's always stood for. So we don't nullify the law. We confirm it's true. It's true. And we'll end there. In chapter 4, we're going to get into uh, Abraham and what Abraham found as far as justification by faith. And then chapter 5 is really interesting. It's, 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 uh, you can impress your friends at Christian clubs. It's called federal headship. And it's just the idea that everybody was in Adam and we all got condemned in Adam. And then now we're all made righteous through Jesus. Some really great stuff is coming about how our salvation works and why it works and, and why it's judicially valid. So today we have the communion and our brother's going to come up and lead us in a few songs and so forth. Or, and I just want to encourage you. You know, Jesus, it says that the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he took a cup. And you guys are probably familiar with it. 
But it was fascinating as he said, he goes, when you eat the bread, he goes, I just want you to remember my body. But what he says about it is interesting. He says that it was given for you. That Christ took on flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh. And he says, and that was, it was given for you. That's why I came. That's why I did it. And then he says, secondly, and he says, when you drink the cup, I want you to remember that this, in this cup, it represents the new covenant in my blood. The old law was do and live, right? Sacrifice and live, bulls and, and goats and, and so forth, and, and pigeons and live, their blood. And he says, but now there's a new covenant. I'm making a new covenant. This was the old covenant that God had that he was faithful with. Now I'm making a new one. And the new one is that you're right in, in me, that your righteousness is through my blood, like we've been reading. So the, the point of communion, Paul gives a warning with it. He says that everybody should examine themselves. And what we're examining for, he says, because look, when you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're showing the Lord's death until he comes. Now we're not going to get weird about it, but the, the point is this, that when we eat the bread, there's a testimony there. Yes, Jesus, you gave this body for me. And there's a testimony. Yes, Jesus, this new covenant is valuable to me. I'm taking a moment to remember it and to consider it. And the reason he says that a person ought to evaluate themselves is that if we're in a place where we're not living that, where we don't think it's, we're just, we're just here, he says that person shouldn't partake. It's not so we can be jerks or we can like look around and see who's got punch and who doesn't or whatever. Actually, I think it's the juice, but you know, you, you get the idea. But the point is that to take a moment and say, Lord, is there something in my heart? Is there something I'm holding out on? And it's interesting because then Paul says, examine himself. And then it says, then let him eat. And the, the emphasis on eat, enjoy, partake. It's not a somber time. It's not a time for sorrow. It's a time for joy. To remember that he's coming again, that he's, that he's uh, you know, given us this new covenant. And we have this great endeavor to be a part of in a journey until he returns. So I encourage you, uh, when Dave comes up, they'll hand our, our two... Deacons will hand this stuff to you um, so we can somewhat keep in a semblance with uh, COVID stuff. And, uh, and then I encourage you, try to like make this the come get it line and then that be the exit line. Otherwise, crazy things happen. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace and the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that we now have righteousness apart from the law. Lord, that you have given us our Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the perfect uh, sacrifice that paid all we could ever owe. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless our hearts and our imaginations as we consider you. I pray, Lord, that you would um, speak truth in our hearts, lead us by your spirit, and that we would be honest with you as we partake. We pray this day would be a great day of growth for us and a day where we make commitments to you and a day where you show yourself faithful. Lord, we thank you for being so good to us. We appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen.